Good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again today. Happy Mother's Day to our mothers out there. Uh, I know this Mother's Day is going to be a whole lot different than any you've ever experienced before, but it'll give our guys a chance to uh, show off their creativity and to figure out a way to, to honor you, even though they can't take you out and buy you flowers and do all the things that they might would like to do uh, or that you might like for them to do. So a uh, happy Mother's Day to you. Uh, we pray God's blessings upon you guys and thank you for all that you guys do uh, every single day to uh, make life so much better than it would be if you guys weren't in the picture. Uh, this morning, as we kind of wait uh, for news from our, our government, uh, from our governor, to uh, talk about the reopening of our state and what that timeline is going to look like, uh, I'm continuing to pray about our regathering. I'm going to call it a regathering, not a reopening, because the church never closes. Uh, it never shuts down, even though we may be in different places doing different things. Uh, the church didn't close. And so we're going to regather one day soon. I don't know what that timeline is going to be exactly. But uh, as we begin to pray about this regathering of our church family, uh, I just want to be honest and say to you right up front that I've got more questions at this point than I do answers. Uh, and not just questions about what is going to be allowable, but, but what's prudent, what's wise, and uh, what's loving for us as a church to do as, uh, as permission is given and as we are uh, allowed to, to, to kind of regather, what's going to be the, the wisest way for us to do that and how do we be able uh, to do it in a way that protects people, gives them uh, confidence and, and assurance that if they come and if they worship that they'll be, uh, they'll be safe and they won't uh, be put at risk. And so we want to, uh, to begin to, to, to look at that and pray about that and see what that looks like. And just want you to know that we're, we're doing that. And today I want to talk about some things that, uh, that we need to consider as we get ready to regather. Uh, one of the, the concerns that, that we as pastors have is it's a real concern that Satan may try to attack the church as we begin this regathering process. Uh, if churches are not wise and if believers are not humble, uh, Satan can flick, inflict more damage as we regather, more damage to the church than the virus has uh, inflicted upon people. Um, and so just as questions abound about how to do that best, uh, so do opinions. Uh, the old story, if you put three Baptists in a room, you're going to get four different opinions. And, and I think that's going to be true as churches try to regather. And Satan may try to do that to leverage uh, people against one another and to create some division and to, uh, to try to somehow uh, break down what God's trying to do in the church. And so we want to be uh, proactive in this, and we want to make sure that what we do uh, doesn't take away from what God wants to do, but adds to um, the, the, the joy and, and the excitement and the reunion that we have as we regather together. And so when questions arise, what we need to do is to allow Scripture to inform our attitudes, to inform our answers that we, that we come up with. And, and these answers have got to come from the Holy Spirit. They've got to come to us through God's Word. And so we go to God's Word and we look and we ask the Holy Spirit to make us aware of attitudes and, and things that we need to, to have prevalent in our lives so that when we regather, it will be something that is positive and, and is, is edifying for the church and not something that would take away from what God wants to do. Uh, we need to make sure that our answers to these questions are not driven by political spin, that it's not driven by economic motives, but that it's, 
It's, it's something that's driven by the Spirit of God and not just by personal agendas, whether it's the pastor's agenda or, or some person's agenda. That's not at all what we want driving these decisions. And so it, that's, a, that's a tough thing when you've got to listen to and, and follow the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when you've got a multitude of opinions and you've got churches all around that are going to be doing all different kinds of things, uh, it's going to be hard for us but necessary for us to listen to the Holy Spirit and to follow His voice as we try to do that. And so I think when we start with Scripture, we need to start with, with, with some of the basic building blocks of Scripture. And Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing in the, in, in the Word of God? And Jesus said there's, there's two important commandments, and that is one, to love God, and the other is to love others as yourself. So we've got to build upon those two basic principles. We've got to love God, but we've also in the process of loving God, have got to love others the way that we love ourselves. And if we violate either one of those two principles, those two commands, uh, then we are not being true to the faith that we profess. So we've got to ask ourselves this question. Is it possible that in our eagerness to love God, that somehow we could actually act unloving toward others? And I think the answer to that is yes. I think that many good-hearted, well-meaning people in their desire to rush back to church and to get back to normal, if they're not careful, could do so in a way that endangers others and that harms others. And in doing so, we are not loving God and loving others. We may be saying that we're loving God, but we're acting unloving toward our brothers and our sisters who might be vulnerable. And so we gotta be very careful that we hold both of these things in balance. And that as we move forward in this thing, that we're not, we're not um, violating one in order to enhance another. I think it's possible for us to do both of these things, and that's what we want to be able to do. Uh, if we, we can claim that I'm worshiping God, and yet while I'm worshiping God, if I'm putting other people in danger, if I'm putting other people at a higher risk of becoming ill and facing death, then in, in that sense, I may be inflicting harm upon them. And so we'll kind of unpack that as we go through this time together. Really, the, the real challenge to regathering as the family of God is to do so in a way that expresses through our words and through our actions uh, our deep love for every single part of the body of Christ. And then in, uh, that, that same love for our community as a whole. And so I think that's a real challenge to be able to do that and to, to regather without considering the needs of each of our worshipers I think would be reckless and be irresponsible. I think it would also be unbiblical and unloving. And I don't want us to do that. And so I want to talk to you this morning about some things that we need to begin to do inside of us before we ever start talking about what needs to happen uh, inside the church. Let's talk about what needs to happen inside of us and, and how we do that. Now, we know uh, from science and we know just from the, the facts and the figures and the numbers that are out there about this COVID virus that there's certain segments of our population that are at a higher risk when it comes to coronavirus. And, and we cannot ignore that reality. We cannot ignore the fact that our senior adults are at a greater risk if they contract this illness, a greater risk of it doing great harm or even causing death. Uh, while there may be others that are younger and more vigorous, that, that it just is a mild thing and it moves on. Uh, we've got to, to recognize that some segments are more at risk than others. And, and I've been amazed at, 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 at the wide variety of, um, of opinions that are out there in the media today about what's going on. And I don't want to dive into all of that, but I, I do want to say that there are some that, that just just kind of blow me away, this idea that we need to rush into this, this, um, 
this herd immunity where we just need to back away any kind of measures that, that are out there, any kind of safety measures, and just let the virus run its course, run it fast. Yes, it'll kill two or three million Americans, but you know what? Then we'll be done with it and we can move on. And by doing that, we spare our economy. And guys, I, I just, that kind of a mindset right now, just it frightens me in the sense that, that people are buying that. And what that really says is, is that it says that our wealth is more important than our people. And that is so anti-biblical. It's so anti-everything that we are supposed to stand for as believers. And uh, what it says is that, that me having my desires is more than others getting to live. The, it says the weak and the vulnerable can die as long as the money keeps flowing. And I, I think that's a dangerous thing. For uh, for churches to uh, to adapt and and to adopt as their mindset, let's just get everything right back to normal as quick as we can. And and you know what what happens? What happens? God's in control, and and guys, God is in control, and we need to have complete confidence and faith in Him. But God gives us wisdom that we are called to exercise, and and He calls us to sacrifice some of the things that we might want for the good of the body. And so we've got to be able to figure out how to balance that. And so as the people of God, we should be displaying a totally different attitude maybe than those who are just saying, let it do its thing and let's just let things happen. Uh, I think we should, should be the people that say, you know what, every single life is valuable. Every single person is important to us and we want to do all that we can to value them. Yes, some will die. And, and God's got to make that call, not me. But I need to do everything I can to value them, to protect them, to, 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 to honor them, and to offer them the opportunity to worship God in a place that's safe and clean, in an environment that's been thought through so that they can do so with great freedom. Uh, we ought to be the ones to, to do all we can to make it safe for every person to, to live longer and to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so we need to begin taking steps, bold steps, to protect others, uh, to value them more than any possessions or more than the profits or the bottom lines or things like that. And, and this conviction, I want you to be clear, it's not rooted in fear. It, it's rooted in a deep, deep love, a love for people. Not a fear of the virus, but a, a love for people. And a love that says, you know what, if we need to sacrifice some things, then we're going to do that for you so that you can come with confidence and you can worship with, with us uh, and, and to, to enter into this time of worship. So Paul provides us some biblical instructions on how we can accomplish this. He, he helps us to, to see that no matter what the challenges that the church might face, there, there is some general attitudes and some general guidance. That, that he offers to us how to get through the, the circumstances of life. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul's talking about his own death and the coming of his death. And he says, I may live, I may die, and I don't know what God's going to choose, but I do know this. And he says, he, he, says he, he said, I want to give you a directive. And in Philippians 1, 27, Paul writes these words. He says, whatever happens, so in any circumstance, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So no matter the circumstances, Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we've got to ask ourselves this question. What is conduct that is worthy of the gospel? What is it that we need to be doing that is worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? And I think Paul answers that question in Philippians chapter 2. He, he says in Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if there's any fellowship with his spirit, if there's any tenderness or compassion, then there's some things I need you to do. 
So what he starts off doing is by he starts off by reminding them of everything that they've been given in Christ. Everything that Christ freely bestows upon those who are his. It's encouragement. Christ gave that to us. He, he gives us comfort. He gives us fellowship. He gives us this tenderness and this compassion. How many of those things did we deserve? Not, not one. They were all grace gifts given by God to an undeserving people. And the reason that this is important is because the grace that we've received from Christ, we are called to offer to others. The compassion that we've been given from Christ, we need to display to others. The love and, and the tenderness and all those kinds of things that he's freely bestowed upon us, we need to freely bestow upon others. This is the gospel 101. This is the gospel 101, exactly what we are called to live out. Philippians 2, 2, the very next verse, he says, I want you to make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being one in spirit and in purpose. And so Paul says, nothing would bring me greater joy than, than for the church to, to have a unity of mind, of heart, of spirit, and of purpose. Look at that. Mind and heart, spirit, and purpose. Be like-minded. That's the mind. Be of the same heart, the same love. There's the same love that God has for you. I want you to display for others. There's the heart. Be one in spirit. There's our spirit. And one in purpose. That's what Paul says would bring him the greatest joy. I also think it's what brings God the greatest joy. When his church has a unity of mind, of heart, of spirit, and of purpose. And I know of nothing that glorifies God more than these things which is also why there's nothing that Satan fights more than those things. That's why I say that, the, that one of the, the great risks, one of the great dangers of churches beginning to regather is that Satan could use this time of regathering to divide the church with the multitudes of opinions and political spin and all that stuff that's out there. He could use this moment that ought to be the great moment of the church regathering to be a moment where the church splinters and fights and fusses over how fast it ought to be done, or what it ought to look like, and why it can't be just like it was before this virus came to town. So it, how, do we, how do we achieve these things that Paul's talking about? Well, in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul continues to tell us how to achieve these things. He says, number one, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So there's two attitudes he gives us here that we need to eliminate, and one attitude that we need to emulate. So let's start with the two that we need to eliminate. What is it that we need to eliminate from, from our hearts if we're going to be a church that's unified, a church that comes together, a church that has an incredible celebration as we regather and reunite. The, the first thing he says you've got to eliminate is selfish ambition. This is a tough one, man, because it's tough for us to recognize sometimes our selfish motives. It's tough for us to see what really drives what we're saying and what we're doing and what we're wanting and what we're demanding. But he says you, you've got to do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's a natural instinct, part of this fleshly desire that's within us that we are to be crucifying but this natural instinct to live for myself to want to make a name for myself to want to be able to make life as comfortable and as enjoyable for myself 
It's that desire to have my needs met, regardless of what that means for those around me. That's selfish ambition. And I've got to warn you that there are some people and some churches that are going to live this way and behave this way and act this way. There are some that have pushed back to make a name for themselves. There are some that want to rush back to make a name for themselves. That's selfish ambition. And it's usually led by people who have the same attitude in themselves that they see in their churches. The second thing he says is to do nothing out of vain conceit. This is the attitude that it's all about me and it doesn't matter how it impacts other people. It's all about me. It's people who say, well, I deserve to get my hair cut. And it doesn't matter if it puts the hairdresser in danger or not. I deserve to get my nails done. I deserve to be able to go where I want to go and do what I want to do. And it doesn't matter if all the employees that have to be there to make this happen for me are put in danger or not. That's, that's vain conceit. That's thinking it's all about me. That, that my opinions and my desires are all that matters in this world. My freedoms and my rights trump everyone else's. I have the right to get what I want and to get it now. This attitude can also be in us as pastors where we, we develop this attitude, well, my people need me. They need to see me face to face. They need to hear me in person. My people need me to grow in Christ. That's vain conceit. And we need to be careful that that's not what drives our decisions. I think you can probably see how that these attitudes could divide and destroy church unity. And churches that regather with this kind of attitude are not going to be healthy. And they're certainly not going to be blessed by God. Oh, there may be some temporary boost in numbers because of fame and recognition or because their doors are open and somebody else's doors are not. But that won't last long. And we are called to, to, to produce fruit that remains over the long haul. So we're going to need the Holy Spirit to help us identify and eliminate this selfish ambition and this vain conceit that can, can disguise itself and hide itself deep within our hearts. And then Paul gives us a, an attitude that we're called to emulate, an attitude that we're called to, to carry out, to make our own, to, 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 to let it radiate to the world. He says there's an attitude you need to, to, to emulate, and that attitude is the humility of Christ. Verses 3 through 5, he, he's talking about this humility of Christ. Now, I want to be careful because humility sometimes is misunderstood. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. But humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of it's not minimizing who you are. It's not denying that we're a child of God, that we are someone of, of value because of what Christ has done for us. It's not denying our value. It's just valuing others. It's not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. Jesus never belittled himself, nor did he deny who he was. He just simply valued others more than he valued his own life. He didn't decrease his value. He increased others' value. You see, humility values others more than it values itself. And this is why it runs so countercultural in our world. He says that in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Think about that. Humility considers others better than itself. 
He says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So I don't need to just think about what's best for me, but I need to ask the question, what's best for everyone? What's best for others? And then my attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So there's three things here that he says that we've got to do if we're going to develop the humility of Christ in our lives. He says, first of all, I've got to consider others to be better than myself. I need to love them and value them and honor them and treat them that way. Second of all, I've got to look to the interest of others. I need to consider what their needs are, and I need to be willing to sacrifice to meet their needs. That's what real love does. That's what real humility does, is it's able to put yourself down below them, to lower yourself, to lift them up. And that's what the humility of Christ did. Christ, who left heaven and lowered himself to become one of us in order that he might lift us up and make us to a child of God. That's the attitude of Christ that needs to be in us. And then he says we've got to develop and maintain the same attitude as Christ had. Uh, we need to, to have his attitude toward us be displayed toward others. That attitude of love and mercy and grace, self-sacrifice. Those need to be characteristic in my life and in your life, in the life of this church, and the actions and the attitudes and the words and the things that we do. Those all need to be filtered through this humility of Christ. And so he says you need to have in yourself the same attitude that Christ Jesus had in himself. And so the humility of Christ calls us to carefully consider how our every action is going to impact others. Uh, I need to ask questions like this. If, if I do this, how is that going to impact others? If I get what I want, who could I hurt in the process of getting what I want? How can my actions hinder somebody else from being able to draw near to Christ, to worship Christ, to love him and to love others? How could my actions hinder somebody else? Now, for us to take on the attitude of Christ and to have the humility of Christ is going to require great humility on all of our parts. There's not one of us that has every answer to every question that's going to arise in this process. But together as a body of Christ, if we'll focus on being humble and, and, and maintaining this attitude which is in Christ Jesus, I believe the Holy Spirit will lead us in these decisions. He'll lead us in this process. And I, and I need you to understand that, that it's not just one change we've got to make, but there's going to be change after change after change after change because this is going to be a gradual process. It's not that, that they're just going to throw the doors of the churches wide open and say, go right back to what you were the day before the virus came. This is going to be a gradual, slow process of one change after another and after another. And i got to be honest with you, those of you that hate change, this is going to be a tough time. And it's not going to be much fun because it's going to be constant changes little by little to help us to get back to a new normal and a new way of worshiping the Lord. So let's drill down a little bit deeper into what this attitude of Christ looked like because we, if we're going to emulate the attitude of Christ, we've got to understand the attitude of Christ. Philippians 2.6, he says that Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now what he's saying here is this, that Christ who has always been and always will be God. He's never been anything other than fully God. He did not set aside his deity when he took on flesh. Now, some people will teach that, 
that Jesus laid aside all of his deity and took on flesh. But, but Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So while he was in the body, in the flesh, he still had all deity in him. He, all the fullness of deity lived in him even while he was in the flesh even when he was here on this earth. And so he says, Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What does that mean? It means while he didn't set aside his deity, he did let go of the privileges owed to him as God. There were things that, that he was owed as God, that he surrendered, that he laid down, that he willingly set aside that privilege in order to take on flesh. And what an example that is for us. There are things that we'll say our Constitution owes us. There are things that this country owes to us. It's our freedoms and our rights. But if I'm going to have the humility of Christ, there's going to be some things that are owed to me that I do not grasp, that I do not hold on to, that I do not insist upon. He surrendered his rights without diminishing his deity. Satan tries to convince us that if we surrender our rights, that will somehow diminish our identity, our value, our self-worth. But the opposite is really true. We are seldom more like Christ than when we lay down our rights for the good of others, which is what Christ did for us. Again, Philippians 2.7, the, the first part of that verse, he says, He made himself nothing. That means Jesus emptied himself of any divine prerogative. Any rights connected to his royalty, he just set those things aside. Considered himself nothing. No right to claim those things. The second part of that verse, he says, he took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You see, the one who, who was and is and forever will be God, took on, he became the very nature of a servant, the very nature of human beings, and not just any human being, but the servant of all human beings. Philippians 2, 8, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So it wasn't just enough that Jesus became man. He continued to humble himself even to the place that, that he became obedient to death, and not just any death, but the death of a criminal on a cross talking about great humility. Think of the humility involved just in God becoming like one of his creatures. How humbling, how humiliating that must be for God to have set aside all of that and all of his rights to take on the form and the shape and the flesh of one of his creatures. Yet that's the kind of humility that Christ took on. And he didn't just come here as the greatest of his creations. He came here as a servant of his creatures. Not the greatest, but the least of all. That's the incarnation. It's the example of humility. You see, Christ didn't come for his sake, but for our sake. He didn't come to pay for his sin. He came to pay for our sin. And just his coming to this earth proved that he valued us more than he valued his own life. And we are to emulate that kind of an attitude as we interact with one another. And as we think through the, the implications of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, we've got to, 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 to not just think about what's best for me, not just what I like and what I want, 
but what's going to be best for the body, what's going to be best for the community. So we are to emulate this attitude. And, and here's what happens. Humility unifies the body of Christ. The opposite of that, pride and arrogance and selfishness, divide the body of Christ. And those are the things that we're going to see Satan trying to sow seeds of, of selfishness, of arrogance, of pride. And if we're not careful to root those things out, if we don't let the Holy Spirit point those things out and repent of those things and get those things out of our hearts and our lives. And listen, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm examining myself to say, I've got to make sure that, that nothing in my leadership is prideful or arrogant or selfish. We've got to make sure that what we do and the decisions that we make are driven by love, not by fear. That, that they're done in, in, in the best interest of others and not just in my own self-interest. And, and so here's the thing. The, the way of humility is not the way of this world. It's not what we see in our politicians. Humility is not the way of the world, but it is the way of Christ. And it's the way that we are called in this passage to emulate it's Christ's humility is supposed to inspire our own humility. As we look at him and consider his example, it paints a picture of what we are to be. Now, now our work is different than his work. We're not sent here to save, as a savior, to die for the world. We are called to represent our Christ to this world and to share that gospel, not just with word, but with deeds, with our attitudes, in a way that they can understand that. And so Christ's humility should inspire our humility. His self-denial, his self-giving, his self-sacrifice, his selflessness ought to inspire those same things in us. His attitude is the attitude that we must emulate. Now, humility is the key to unity. But humility is also the key to exaltation. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, humility is the key to unity. It's also the key to exaltation. He says here, Christ lowered himself. He humbled himself. But God lifted him up. God exalted him. When we lower ourselves in order to lift others up, God will lift us up. We are called to exalt. He that humbles himself will be exalted, but he that exalts himself will be humbled, the Bible says. Jesus says the least shall be the greatest, and the greatest shall be the servant. The, 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 the philosophy and the mindset of Christianity is completely different than everything we see in, in our American way. It's, it's different. And so we need to emulate the attitude of Christ, not just the attitude of America. The world needs to see a difference in us that stands out. So he says in Philippians 2, 13, 12 and 13, Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out, continue to, to, to flesh out, to live out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what's he talking about here? To flesh out our salvation, to make it visible for people to see. But we do it in this awe and this reverence of Christ's humility toward us. This example that Christ showed to us ought to create an awe and this desire in us to do it the way that Christ did it. And so he says, in, 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 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God that works in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purpose. So we will work out our salvation by emulating the attitude of Christ. And as God works within us, he shapes our hearts and our desires 
to, to, to fit in line with his good purpose. So as I submit myself to God, as I humble myself before the Lord, he's able to reshape my desires and my heart and my actions that they align with his good pleasure, with his good purpose of building up the church and edifying the body of believers by reaching a lost world and making a difference that we could never make in attitudes that are natural to our flesh. So as we emulate the attitude of Christ, um, we see God working in us so that he can work through us. We see God working in so that we can work out. And then in, in verses 14 and 15, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a crooked and depraved generation. There's the distinction between the attitude that we're to have and the attitude of our world. I want you to shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. So here's what he's saying. As we seek to display the humility of Christ, we've got to consider others better than ourselves. We've got to put the needs of others above our own. We need to do all of this without complaining or arguing. Can you imagine saying, I'm going to put the need of others before me, and I'm going to think of others and what they need, but I'm going to gripe and complain the whole time I'm doing it. That would defeat our whole purpose. He says, man, if you have the attitude of Christ, you're not going to complain and you're not going to argue about humility that's in your life. You're not going to argue and complain that you've humbled yourself in order to elevate others. Do so without complaining or arguing. Don't begrudgingly do the right thing for the right reason without the right attitude. Don't do that. Live your life blameless, above the reproach of the world. Live it pure, undefiled by the world's attitudes, undefiled by anybody else's opinions. Live blameless, live pure, live without fault in a crooked and depraved world. He's saying live in a way that, that contrasts your life with the life of those who don't yet know Jesus, with those who don't yet possess the attitude and the humility of don't get sucked into this world's attitudes and their opinions, their actions, and their behaviors. Don't just go along with the crowd. Stand out and let people look at you and go, man, there's something different about that person. There's something different about Crossroads and, and the way that, that they're approaching this, this regathering. There's something different about those believers that, that, that aren't just reckless, but they're, they're, they're methodical in making sure that they're doing everything they can lift others up and to make possible true and authentic worship of God. We need to stand out, he says, like stars in the universe, reflecting Christ so that others can see their way. He says you do it all while you're holding out the word of life, the gospel. You see, people can't hear the gospel that we're preaching if they don't see the gospel first lived out in our lives. They don't care how much we know till they know how much we care. And so we've got to be careful that we live out the gospel as we hold up the gospel. So it's, you know, it's, we've got to ask the question, what good is it to profess the gospel if our actions towards others don't demonstrate that same gospel? What good is it to talk about the love of Christ if they're not seeing that same kind of love, that same kind of sacrifice, that same kind of humility in each and every one of us? If all we do is demand our rights, uh, make known our desires, and live as if this is all about me. That's not faith, at least not Christian faith. In fact, it's really hypocrisy. I 
profess this, but I'm not going to live it. Paul says, bring those two things in line. Bring what you say and what the gospel says in line with what you do and your attitude by which you do it. Because God is glorified when Christ's humility is emulated through our attitudes and our actions and our words. And as a member of Crossroads, guys, we must always prioritize others more than ourselves. We must always think and ask, what is it, what is it going to take for us to be able to reach our community, to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that's going to require sacrifice and humility all kinds of things that just don't come natural for us. So, if that means that I've got to preach three different services on the weekend to be able to accommodate smaller groups and to be able to protect those that are most vulnerable, then I'll preach three times over the weekend. If that means that we've got to clean and sanitize every doorknob and every chair and and, and everything that people touch in between services so that the next group that comes in can, can know that they're coming into a clean place, clean and will sanitize between every single service. If that means that our, our Bible study groups need to meet in larger rooms and we don't have a lot of large rooms, then we may have to take turns using rooms in order to accommodate everybody. Because it's not just about what I need or what my group wants, but it's about the good of the whole body. If it means that we've got to be creative in how we get together, when we get together, what days we get together, then we can do that to be the body of Christ. Because at the end of the day, what matters is that the humility that we see in Christ and the actions and the attitudes that were in Him are demonstrated to those that we're in contact with every single day. What matters at the end of the day is not how big we say our faith is, but how big we show our faith to truly be. So we've got to intentionally demonstrate that each of us values others more than we just value ourselves. That, that we consider others more important than ourselves. That we place the, the needs of others before our own needs and our own desires. So as churches regather across the nation and they begin to, to, to come back together, I believe something's going to happen. And we'll see if this does, but I believe it will. I believe the true heart of each church is going to become evident to those that are, are encountering those churches. I think that some churches are going to turn inward and make this, this regathering all about themselves, while others are going to emulate the attitude of Christ and begin to place the needs of others above their own. Maybe some churches for the very first time. This process is not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. It's, it's going to be messy. One one church leader we, I was in a in a, uh, a conference with this week over a video conference said nobody anywhere is going to like phase one of this regathering. It's just not going to be enjoyable, but it's going to be necessary and it's going to be temporary. And so we get through it the best that we can. It's not going to be an easy process or a quick process. It's going to require patience, grace, and understanding and compassion from every single one of us. Worship's going to look different, feel different, sound different. It's going to be different. But that doesn't have to mean it's bad. It just means it's different. Some are going to be tempted to complain that it's going way too fast. And others are going to complain that it's going to go way too slow. Paul says, don't fall in that trap. Don't be the ones that complain. Keep yourselves above the fray. 
Let's just take it one step at a time as God directs and leads our steps. Let's follow his lead. Let's sacrifice as sacrifice is needed. Let's love at all costs. And by God's grace, we're going to find our way. By God's grace, we're going to develop a new normal. By God's grace, we're going to glorify God at every step of this process. By God's grace, souls will be added to the kingdom of God. Think about that. Isn't that why we gather in the first place? Is that we can bring people to Christ and grow them up in Christ so they can go out and bring other people to Christ and that the kingdom of God can spread. Have you thought about, listen, just think about this virus. It started with one person. And how many millions of people have been impacted by one person and the spread? What about the gospel, guys? What about the gospel? who started way back then, 2,000 years ago, with just a handful of believers, and how it spread. Just think about how the gospel, when it's done in the humility and the attitude of Christ, how it can multiply and spread and reach an entire world. I want to assure you, and I want to assure others, that we're going to try to do everything that we do here in the humility of Christ. That we're going to place the needs of others above our own, even when that requires great sacrifice on my part and on your part. But I want to warn you now before we begin to regather, and this is where I really want you to focus right here. In the next two minutes, give me your full attention, please. I want to warn you before we ever start that this process of regathering, this process of sacrificing, of trying to develop the, the attitude of, of Christ in us, this process in itself will reveal much about each of our hearts. Things that, that, that we think are buried deep within or that don't even exist in our heart are going to come to the surface. Great struggles always reveal what's lying below the surface. What we think we've got hidden is going to become evident. Things that are unresolved in our lives, issues and sins that, that, that have not been dealt with are going to make their way to the surface. Selfishness and stuff like that that we've never put to death going to make their way to the surface during this time because trials will reveal what's deep within so now is the time before we ever regather now is the time for us to to allow the holy spirit to honestly examine what's deep in the hidden recesses of our hearts and to ask god to conform our hearts to his now it's funny to me that as i wrote these words earlier in the week um Oh, man, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm there. And then God allowed some stuff to happen in my heart this week to reveal that I wasn't where I thought that I needed to be. Some things began to come to the surface that I really had to pause and let God deal with. It wasn't fun. It wasn't enjoyable. But it was necessary. And it was needed. And that's how God's going to do it. We, we need to allow God to do his work in the deep recesses of our heart right now so that as we start this regathering process, something doesn't come out of us that would embarrass us or even worse, be dishonoring to God. We, we need to do it now before we say or we do something that dishonors the Lord and, and discredits our testimony to the world. See, we're not ready to regather until we take care of the stuff in the, in the bottom of our heart. Until we allow the Lord to really begin to, to do in us the work that we see done in Christ. We see evident in Him. So we're not going to get this perfect. 
believe me, there's gonna it's gonna be messy. Okay. But we'll be graceful and we'll get through this. And we'll offer forgiveness and extend the olive branch. We will do what we need to do to find a way through this. We'll be patient with one another because we're not gonna get it perfect. Man, the more we prepare our hearts now, man, the greater it's gonna be when we do get to come back together. And the smoother it will be, and the greater and more unified our testimony will be to the world around us. So let me ask you this. Is your attitude an attitude of humility right now? Can you say that you have within you the same attitude that is in Christ? Because if we don't, today's the day we need to get that right. Do your desires demonstrate that you value others more than you value yourself? Have you considered how your choices and your actions and your desires might adversely affect other people? Not just here at church, but as you re-enter society, as, as, as establishments reopen, your actions, whether you choose to wear a mask or not a mask, speaks value to other people. We've got to consider those things. and We've got to ask those questions. And we need to set as our goal as we plan to regather, not to put any stumbling blocks in anybody's way, not to do anything that would hinder somebody else from being able to come into worship and to enjoy being back with the people of God. But in humility, we need to do all that we can to enable others to see and to feel and to experience the love of Christ through the sacrifices that we willingly, gladly, joyfully make so let's emulate the humility of Christ as we refuse, like Christ refused, to cling to power and to privilege and to our rights. We refuse to grasp for those things. And we choose instead to value others above ourselves, to put their needs as our priority. Humility brings unity. And a church that is unified is glorifying to God and it's attractive to others. So it glorifies God Man, it is a beacon of hope, and it is like a light that a moth is drawn to. Let's be that church. Let's be that church that's together with the focus not on ourselves, but on others as we get together again. So are you ready? I know I am. But, but we got to ask the question, are we really ready? Or is there still a work that God needs to do inside of us today? to get us ready for that. Now's the time to get our hearts ready. And if we'll do that, then when we regather, it can be remarkable. I want to pray with you. And uh, again, wish you a happy Mother's Day to our mothers out there. But let's pray. Let's ask God to get our hearts ready for the moment that he throws the doors open and lets us begin to come back together and gather as the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the example of Christ, for the attitude that he demonstrated to even come and take on flesh and then to be the servant of his creation. God, let us be those same kind of servants. Let us have the same attitude in us that was in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if there's stuff inside of me that does not belong, that you do whatever you need to do, as uncomfortable as it may be, to make me aware of that so that I can get rid of that stuff and so that I can live and act in a way that doesn't embarrass myself and certainly doesn't bring reproach upon the kingdom of God. Lord, guide us and lead us. Hold us together as a body as we get ready to come back together. Hold us together, Lord. Let us be one 
as, as, as we need to be in you so that the world can see our love for one another and know that we are disciples of Christ. I pray all this now in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. I love y'all. And I am counting the days until we get to be back together. Have a great week. Love you guys. Bye-bye.